Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Three, two, one. But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Come in, everybody. Episode 563 of the podcast. It's Speak America, the Intertour Sports Podcast. It is Friday, July 29th. 2022 people i hope everybody's doing well i hope everybody is having a great day i hope everybody is ready for the ffe the fun friday edition of the aaron torres sports podcast here is what you need to know about today's show we are going to open big 10 media days was tuesday and wednesday and i think there was actually a lot of interesting stuff that came out of it now rather than focus on one specific thing one specific quote instead there was about five or six little topics that I think we're just going to kind of rip around really quickly a minute on each and talk about Big Ten Media Days. Really kind of a fascinating conference, right? We talk so much about the SEC, but the Big Ten, think about it. Michigan is the defending champ. Ohio State is kind of in a playoff or bust season. Nebraska, Scott Frost, if he doesn't win big, his future is in jeopardy. Michigan State coming off an 11-win season. A lot to discuss in the world of college football, but specifically from Big Ten Media Days, I'll give you five, six, seven things that I noticed there. From there, we will completely switch gears. I told you this on Wednesday's show, but Rafer Alston, 10-year NBA vet, is going to join me on the Aaron Torres podcast, and let me explain why. Rafer Alston is part of a documentary that is on Showtime tonight, Friday, July 29th, about the New York City point guard culture It is a documentary called NYC Point Gods. It is on Showtime, uh, produced by Kevin Durant's production company, Um, and it's really good. I saw it the other day, and Ray Alston joins me. The documentary features him, features Mark Jackson, features Stephon Marbury, Kenny Anderson. Really think you'll enjoy the Ray Alston interview. We talk about everything, playing college ball for Jerry Tarkanian, playing on the and one mixtape tour doing all sorts of crazy stuff a wild career for ray for alston really enjoyed and we will wrap with where aaron was right where aaron was wrong quickly before we get to uh, the big 10 media days i do want to mention the college football betting show has really ramped up and i i bring it up because i actually did the big 10 east over under win totals last week or, or, or earlier this week so if you like college football as part of aaron torres media we have a show called college football betting 
with Aaron Torres. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, wherever you find your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe and download that. Hardcore college football talk. We previewed the Big Ten East this week and the SEC East and West in previous weeks. With that said, I do want to get to the topic of the day. And as I just said, it was Big Ten media days this week. And as I just said a second ago, Big Ten probably doesn't have the, the, the swag, the bravado of SEC media days. But in terms of interesting conversations going on in the Big Ten, I think you can legitimately argue there's as many interesting storylines in the Big Ten as the SEC or any conference of college football, starting with the USC-UCLA stuff. Obviously, as I just discussed, Michigan being the defending champ, Ohio State really being one year removed from a playoff, losing to Michigan. You know that did not sit well in Columbus. Scott Frost, on and on and on and on and on. At the same time, I didn't feel like going through and watching everything that happened over the last couple days that there was like one thing that really stood out from Big Ten Media Days. And so what I want to do instead is hit on, I, I counted, if my math is correct, and I've never claimed to be a math expert, I counted six different things that really stood out to me, six takeaways from SEC Media Days. Let's get, or Big Ten Media Days, excuse me. So let's jump right into them. Let's talk about them because like I said, fascinating league, fascinating conference, and I really think there was some very interesting stuff that came out of Media Days. First of all, there was this weird expansion report. I don't know if you saw this, but Brett McMurphy, who's a really credible college football reporter, basically said that the Big Ten is considering further expansion and that they believe that there are properties, there are schools that would bring them value outside of Notre Dame. We've talked about it enough on this podcast. You don't need me to repeat myself, but it goes without saying that Notre Dame is essentially the white whale of college football realignment. Everybody wants Notre Dame. Uh, the SEC would take Notre Dame in a second if they were available and interested. The Big Ten obviously wants them. The Big 12 kind of wants them for, uh, I don't think they're going to get them, but the Big 12 wants them as well. Basically, anybody would take Notre Dame if they could get them. But the prevailing sentiment has been that if Notre Dame's off the table, that's probably going to stall realignment for now because of the fact that there just aren't a lot of other schools that move the needle, and you don't want to add for the sake of adding if it's not going to improve your TV contract. Well, we got a report from Brett McMurphy that basically ran completely counter to that as he said that Kevin Warren, the commissioner of the Big Ten, says that there are a handful of schools that would add value to the Big Ten. Now, Kevin Warren didn't say this part, but according to Brett McMurphy, those five schools are Oregon, Washington, Stanford, Cal, Miami, and Florida State. I guess that would be six schools, not five. Let me just say this. Look, I, I, I could be completely wrong. We do where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong all the time because I get stuff wrong. I don't buy this report at all. First of all, Kevin Warren already was asked about it, walked it back, said we're not looking for further expansion. But this just doesn't even make sense to me, right? Because at the end of the day, first of all, remember, according to the Brett McMurphy report, schools that add value to the existing Big Ten contract. I'm sorry. I understand that Cal and Stanford are in the Bay Area market. I understand that University of Washington is in Seattle. I get all that. Miami is in, obviously, the city of Miami. Realignment is not, no longer about which markets can you capture. It is about brand. It is about total value. It is about what an individual school brings. 
the previous rounds of realignment were about trying to capture a TV market back in a day when we used to do, when people, more people just had cable, right? So when the Big Ten added Rutgers, the concept was everybody in New Jersey that wants to get, watch Rutgers now has to get the Big Ten network. That's not the case anymore. Same when Maryland joined the Big Ten. Same with all of these decisions. Now it's about brand. It's about the how many people are interested in watching your games. That's why Oklahoma and Texas went to the Big Twelve from the Big Twelve to the SEC. Why USC and UCLA went to the Big Ten. So I don't buy this report at all because none of those schools add value. And I also think it's worth noting, by the way, that every move the Big Ten has made over the last couple of years has essentially been sort of academically inclined. Yes, they're taking to add to their athletic programs, but they also are not taking bad academic schools. It's why Notre Dame is interesting to them outside of the football component, really good academic school. USC, really good academic school. UCLA, don't know how many of you know this, it is the most applied to university in the United States, uh, great academic school. And so while some of those schools make sense from a academic fit, some of them don't. Florida State, probably a little bit of a better academic school than people think. I don't know that it fits the profile of what the, the Big Ten is looking for. Same with Oregon, same with a smaller degree to Miami. And so I think this report was complete nonsense. I don't know why it came out. I'm not criticizing Brett McMurphy. If he gets good stuff from his sources, he has to report it. But this just doesn't make sense. Maybe I'm dead wrong. Maybe by Monday, the Big Ten now has whatever, 20 teams. If you had these six with the, or 22 teams, I guess, these six with the other uh, four, uh, two that are being added. I just don't get this. I don't buy this report one bit. Second thing, Kevin Warren. This guy is so exhausting, and he's such a gas bag. Okay, so never forget, Kevin Warren was the guy, and part of it wasn't his fault, but he comes to the Big Ten literally a few months before the world shuts down because of COVID. Not his fault. He has no relationships. But when the presidents in the Big Ten wanted to shut down college football in 2020, this guy bent over backwards, and you know what happens when you bend over backwards and somebody else is in power. You, 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 get, you get where I'm going with that analogy, okay? So this guy has the audacity, comes on the mic at Big Ten Media Days, and is asked about the USC-UCLA news. Here is what he said. I wasn't going to come into this job saying, oh, well, this is the way it's been. The organizations, the entities, and the people who are going to be able to thrive in a disruptive environment are those who embrace being comfortable in an uncomfortable situation. The organizations or conferences that are going to come out of this in really good position are those that are able to adapt and be nimble. Oh, my God. Oh, this guy is full of so much hot air. Uh, you know, he could put a balloon in the air. Okay, first of all, a couple things. Stop. First of all, stop it. You're not Steve Jobs. You're not uh, Mark Cuban. You're not Damon John. You inherited a good situation with great brands that make a ton of money before you got there, and they're going to make a ton of money after you got there. Okay? So that's one. Two, like I said, stop, stop acting like you've created, you're this agent of change in college sports. First off, you bent over backwards for the Big Ten presidents. You didn't stand up to them. You didn't stand up for what was right. You didn't stand up when everybody knew that you could play college football. And then a month later, when your players were ready to sue you, then you went scrambling. Three, let me tell you this about conference realignment and USC and UCLA. And I live in Los Angeles. I feel pretty confident saying this. 
If you listen closely on Wednesday's show, I talked about Gene Smith talking about the 16-team college football playoff. Gene Smith is the Ohio State Athletic Director. And what I said was, Gene Smith, wink, wink, nod, nod, is the most powerful person in college football. And if you want to know why the UCLA-USC stuff got done, it wasn't Kevin Warren, the commissioner. It was Gene Smith, the Ohio State Athletic Director, that was the puppet master behind the scenes. Here's what you need to know. I can't say with 100% authority, but these are facts. These are indisputable. One, UCLA's AD, Martin Jarman, really sharp, really young, uh, really sharp, talented young guy. Where did he come from? He was the AD at Boston College before he was at UCLA. And before that, he worked at Ohio State for 10 years. Him and Gene Smith are tight. Gene Smith is his mentor. My guess, and no one has told me this, but Gene Smith was not going to leave him out to dry. Mike Bone, the USC athletic director, spent six years at Cincinnati. You think the Cincinnati AD and the Ohio State AD didn't rub shoulders at some point together? Uh, Because they did. Beyond that, what I can definitively tell you, Martin Jarman, Mike Bone, the USC and UCLA athletic directors, vice versa, Martin Jarman at UCLA, Mike Bone at, at USC, are very close and they got very close during COVID. They got very close during COVID because they were the ones that in the Pac-12 were fighting harder than anybody for Pac-12 football. It wasn't Larry Scott the former commish? It wasn't Oregon? It wasn't Arizona, Arizona State, Washington? It was California. Because Remember, California had the strictest restrictions out of everybody. When college football started, USC and UCLA, they couldn't even get together for an unpadded practice outside. The groups, remember there was a limitation to how many many people could be in a group and get together? Martin Jarman and Mike Bone got on the, the, the phone with the governor's office to get the governor to approve of even having practices, let alone games. So those two have moved together. They have ties to Gene Smith. This wasn't Kevin Warren, to use his own words, being comfortable in an uncomfortable situation. This wasn't about him uh, being able to adapt and be nimble. This is about Gene Smith being a boss, okay? Don't know Gene Smith, not carrying his water. What I can tell you, I believe, and I have done pretty good sourcing, that the USC-UCLA move had much more to do with Gene Smith. Kevin Warren gets to puff out his chest and pretend like he did something. Let's get into some of the individual schools out of the Big Ten. And I'll tell you this, I, you know, there was about four or five quotes that really stood out to me. Let's get to them. First was James Franklin, the head coach at Penn State. And Pe- James Franklin's kind of an interesting guy, right? Because if you kind of look at the totality of James Franklin uh, during his time at Penn State, I think you would largely consider it a success, okay? First two years, a little bit of a struggle. Remember, that was straight out of the Jerry Sandusky, Joe Paterno stuff. Bill O'Brien was there for two years. When James Franklin took over, there was still all sorts of scholarship, whatever. They finished 7-6, seven 7-6. and six, seven and six. Year three, they finish 11-3, and three, win the Big Ten, and go to the Rose Bowl. That was the year, by the way, that... Penn State won the Big Ten, beat Ohio State head-to-head, and Ohio State still got into the college football playoff. I said it at the time. I continue to say it. James Franklin made a mistake not pushing harder to get into the playoff. I think he thought he was ahead of schedule. How different does his resume look if he has a playoff appearance that season? Then he goes 11-2, 9-4, 11-2, COVID 4-5, last year 7-6. and six. So what James Franklin said, and if you remember, after the 7-6 and six season, James Franklin got a massive extension, and everybody was like, wow, that guy got $75 million? That is insane. But he said something interesting at Media Days. He said, for the first time, the alignment is the way that it should be, this quote via ESPN. 
I mean this in total respect. We're doing things and making decisions to move past. It's not all in response, which is what I've been living with for eight years. We're finally at that point, and that's powerful. And so why I find that quote very interesting is because I have been told by multiple people that Penn State is kind of like, you know how I talked about USC when Lincoln Riley got hired and Mario Cristobal when he got hired at Miami, how USC and Miami, for the past decade or so, they thought they were putting in the work to compete at the highest level. They thought they were doing what they needed to do to compete at the highest level, but they really weren't. The facilities weren't on par with Alabama and Georgia and most of the best schools in the SEC, Texas A&M, etc., Ohio State in the Big Ten. They thought that their support staff was good enough, but Alabama has literally probably 40 or 50 people working behind the scenes. Same with Jimbo Fisher in Texas A&M. Same with Kirby Smart in Georgia. Same with Ryan Day at Ohio State, who he learned from Urban Meyer. And Penn State was one of those schools that my understanding was it really was run Frankly, a lot like when Joe Paterno was there. And I'm not trying to be a jerk, and I'm not trying to bring up the past with Joe Paterno. But I believe Joe Paterno's son, by the way, is still on like the board of trustees at Penn State. And so I think Penn State thought that they were willing to compete at the highest level, and they really weren't. And that's why James Franklin's quote is so interesting to me, is because it does feel like finally financially, whether it's support staff, coaching staff, coordinators, facilities, They are willing to compete at the highest level. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to win. It doesn't mean they're going to be better than Ohio State, whatever. But like I said, there have been a lot of schools over the last probably decade or so that thought that they were competing at the highest level that frankly probably weren't. I think Penn State was one of them. This James Franklin quote was interesting. Let's go to the second quote that I found interesting. First, there's Jim Harbaugh. Um, And look, Jim Harbaugh said some stuff about abortion. I'm not going to get into it here. You guys and girls pretty much know that's not really the lane that I like to go down. One thing I would say, um, I don't think his original quotes, I saw people say, oh my goodness, he's so controversial. I don't think it's controversial. I think he's allowed to have his own opinion. I think you're allowed to disagree with it. I don't think you should be making any decisions in your own life on abortion based on what Jim Harbaugh says. He followed it up by saying, and this was a, a quote almost verbatim, that if one of his players had a child that was unwanted, he and his wife would take care of it, which was a little bit strange, but I don't think it was controversial or bad. And again, I think anybody should be allowed to pretty much say whatever they want. Yes, there's freedom of speech limitations, but I have no fundamental issue with what he said. Sticking with football, though, because I don't want to talk about abortion, um, I did think he had some interesting things to say about his team. And I know it's easy to make fun of Jim Harbaugh. And I know it's easy to criticize them and to say they got lucky last year and maybe they caught Ohio State in the perfect situation, and I think that they did. But here's what Jim Harbaugh had to say about his team at Media Days. He said they're not going to flinch. There's nothing I really got to teach them or show them or tell them. I mean, I know our team well, really well by now. They don't blink, they don't flinch, and they just keep attacking and building, and that's definitely our goal to win the championship again. And so listen, what I would say is a couple things. Again, I know it's easy to criticize Jim Harbaugh. And what I would also say, as I've said many times this summer, I don't like the way he's handled himself since that playoff. Playoff ends, he immediately puts his own name out there in the Raiders and Chicago Bears coaching searches, was not a fan of that. Then, on National Signing Day, went to interview with the Minnesota Vikings when everyone, or at least I did and my sources knew, that they were going to take Kevin O'Connell and that he was definitely, at best, a very distant second choice. Didn't like how he handled himself, but I'll give him credit, man. First of all, 
I do think like I don't think people realize how good he's been at Michigan. I mean, he's sixty-one and twenty-four overall. You take out the COVID year where he went two and four. He's fifty-nine and twenty-four. That's pretty freaking good at Michigan in this era. Ten and three in year one, ten and three in year two, eight and five, ten and three, nine and four, twelve and two last year with the COVID year the year before. But I also do I'll say this. I, I, I did get the sense that there was a quiet confidence to him. And I remember there being a quiet confidence to him last year. I remember last year watching him at SEC at Big Ten Media Days and saying, you know, this guy, it's like he knows something that nobody else knows. And now everybody made fun of him at the time because they were coming off a bad year and he's terrible and he's this and he's that. But he made some comments like, I believe we have the best team in the Big Ten or something like that. And to his credit, he went out and proved it. There was nothing fluky about what happened with Michigan football last year. Now, you could say they don't have the talent or personnel of, of Georgia or Alabama, but this was a team last year that won at Wisconsin. They won at Penn State. They won at Nebraska. They beat Ohio State. They beat Iowa in the Big Ten championship game. They beat Washington early in the regular season. Yeah, they didn't beat Georgia. They earned their spot into the college football playoff as well. Well, So if Jim Harbaugh is telling you that he likes his team, I would be very, very, very wary. By the way, I mentioned it on the college football betting show. Again, I encourage you to check it out. Michigan probably at nine and a half wins, probably my favorite bet in the Big Ten East. A couple other quotes that stood out. First of all, Scott Frost uh, pulled the Mike Leach and said, I have no opening statement. Let's get to some questions. And that might sound stupid and it might not mean much to you, but the vibe that I got from everybody from Nebraska the coaches, the players, and even Trev Alberts, their AD, who was there. Everybody knows what's at stake this year. And, and, you know, I give Scott Frost some degree of credit. First of all, I talked about Nebraska on last week, on last Wednesday's show, and I said they're the most interesting team in college football. Three and nine, but all nine wins by nine points or less, eight wins by a touchdown or fewer. But why they're interesting, in my opinion, is that I think it appears as though everybody knows what's at stake. And one, I give credit to the school. They could have done what every other school does in that situation, which is just fire him, let him go. And I will say, if he wasn't Scott Frost, the legendary Nebraska quarterback with an, a Nebraska alum as an AD, maybe he doesn't survive. But I also think that the administration saw what we saw. Eight losses by a touchdown or less. Eight losses that easily could have been wins, and really all nine losses could have been wins. Ohio State, they lost by nine, but there was a play uh, on the goal line where they could have taken the lead late, instead turnover on down. I think they missed a field goal, excuse me. Ohio State goes down and score. But the reason I bring it up is because, one, I give the administration credit. Two, I think they saw, hey, we're not that far. You know, we're three and nine. We could have been just as easily nine and three and go into a really nice bowl game. And then also I give Scott Frost credit. Completely shook up his coaching staff. He's no longer calling plays. They hit the portal really hard, and I think it's very, they're just a very interesting team. I know it's easy. I know it's easy to say, you know, whatever, that they're going to turn it around. This is the year they figure it out. But they have the personnel, and I just think it's going to take one win. I think it's going to take one win in a close game where they figure out a way to win rather than figure out a way to lose, and if that happens, I think they could go on a roll. I'm not predicting them to win the Big Ten West, but I don't think that it's inconceivable. And then finally, lastly, Ohio State. And there's not much to it, but Jackson Smith and Jigba, their star wide receiver, here is what he had to say about Ohio State. He said, I feel like we really haven't won anything, so we're hungry. We just want to get to week 15. 
I saw him in a separate interview say, we want to get to week 15 and play at SoFi Stadium. SoFi Stadium, by the way, is the host of the national championship game this year. And so I find these quotes absolutely fascinating because it's clear that at Ohio State, it's championship or bust this year and every year, and that that group is disappointed that they could not take home a Big Ten title and go to the college football playoff last year. The fact that they're talking in terms of Week 15, an NFL schedule, SoFi Stadium, it says to me that that program is locked in, and I, for one, am locked in on Big Ten football too. Okay, this is what I want to do. I do want to step back, take a quick break, and when I come back, when I come back, I want to switch gears and welcome on a really fun guest. Rafer Alston, the former 10-year NBA player, played at Fresno State under Jerry Tarkanian, was part of the And One Mixtape Tour. Just a fun, fascinating interview. I think you'll enjoy it. Rafer Alston, we will end the show with where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. Really fun Friday episode. I will be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday 
I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. All right. Joining me via Zoom. So I'm, I'm really excited about this interview. Uh, on Friday night, July 29th, there is a new documentary out on Showtime. It's by Kevin Durant and his team. New York City Point Guards, a unique look at New York City's iconic and trend-setting point guards, uh, interviews with Mark Jackson, Kenny Anderson, many others. And uh, joining me now to talk about the documentary, his career, really excited. Ray for Alston, how you doing, man? Everything good? Uh, everything's good, man. Thanks for having me. So I appreciate you joining me. And, you know, fascinating. First of all, tell us a little bit about the documentary. How did it come together? Uh, how were you were you approached with the other guys? I mean, tell us a little bit about the documentary that people will be able to watch here on Showtime on Friday the 29th. Well, the Point Guard documentary uh, is, you know, about the New York, you know, really the culture of New York City basketball, um, uh, what it means and what it is to be uh, an up-and-coming point guard in New York City, a uh, a high school phenom, maybe a playground phenom, a college uh star and, and and eventually making it to the to the nba as uh, a lot of us have done uh but you get to delve into what basketball really means not only to uh the city the communities the environment you get a chance to see uh light from a, um, a young man um, that's trying to come up in the shadows of so many others um, and, and when you get a chance to see it, you're going to see that there were so many guys that were, you know, ahead of, you know, the likes of myself, um, you know, guys that were uh, older than uh, guys like Stephon Marbury, if you, you know, just to name two of us, um, you get to see what we, what we were trying to live up to. Um, um, and also what, um, what a lot of us have meant to so many people. Uh, in New York City at the at the time that we were trying to find our way in the game and the sport uh, and throughout New York City. Let me ask you, you know, you have a very interesting background in that, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, by the way, but I think you were kind of known as a street ball guy before anything. Um, and then you, you did go, you know, the traditional route to college, uh, played a decade in the NBA. When did you first kind of start to, to make a name for yourself in New York City? Because there's obviously so many greats before you, like you said. Uh, when did you when did you really start to make a name for yourself? Were you were you super young? What, what about what age? Oh, uh, you know what? I, I made a name for myself at a young age. Yeah, you're talking about you're talking about a lot of us. Um, people who recognize us or recognize the talent and the skill set at a very young age. I'm talking about eight, nine, ten years old. Oh wow. Uh, a lot of us were exceptional and gifted and talented at a very young age. Um, I think the the public and everyone you know that's um, that's not around us every day or that's not from the city or the state, they get a chance to hear about us years later. Uh, but um, you know, throughout New York City, a lot of people because you 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 basketball tournaments are pretty much year round. Uh, they're in every borough of New York City, and and a lot of us we're gonna end up playing in so so many tournaments uh, throughout the entire city, uh, not just the borough we lived in. So, um, but for me, 
I think the playground name started at, you know, 14, uh, um, you know, 14 years old. And then I think that's when it just took on a life of its own, um, not just in New York City and then state of New York, but, you know, abroad. Well, let me ask you, you know, it, it's such a different world now. Um, you know, now we have YouTube and Instagram and, you know, I don't think it's that uncommon for a kid to blow up at 14, 15 years old. Um, what does it take for you to be recognized, one, at a young age, but then two, I mean, I'm assuming when you're 14, 15, that's when you start to get established kind of beyond just your neighborhood or whatever. But also, I assume that that's when you maybe start to make a name for yourself with the older guys. What do you have to do to earn the respect of the older guys, especially kind of on, you know, in the streetball circuit, as opposed to the model that we have now where kids play AAU and they play with their age group and then they move up back then, I'm assuming you kind of just showed up and you either, you either sank or swim, I assume, right? No, actually it was the same as today. Okay. The only thing about today is it's broadcast more. Sure. You know, because of social media, but remember nothing in life is different. Everything, everything repeats itself. Um, in New York City, it was the same. You know, a lot of them, we all played against each other, with each other in AAU ball. Uh, um, we played up. We played our age group. Some of us played two levels up. It just depended on the coach and uh, the, the event that was happening back then. As far as the playground, that's different. Uh, those tournaments are pretty predominantly uh, considered pro-am or what we used to call unlimited, which is an unlimited a roster and unlimited uh, age group. So uh, you got to go out there and hold your own. You got to be able to deal with a lot, be able to absorb and, 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 and take in a lot. Um, a lot is going to be thrown at you. At, if you go out there at the age, I, you know, I was 14 when I started playing pro-ams on uh, unlimited leagues. And, and, and um, I think really what happens to a lot of us in New York City is just the environment communities we come from toughens up. We, we, we're like, it toughens up, tough, ah, excuse me, toughens us up, uh, you know, just our upbringing. And uh, so that alone prepares us for what battle we might have ahead of us in basketball, any sport we play. So the bat, I mean, I was playing against some phenomenal basketball players when I was 14. These guys were grown men. These guys were still uh, going overseas and, and still trying uh, playing in the minor leagues and, uh, and uh, professionals here in the U.S. Uh, back then, the minors was like the CBA, the WBL. Um, they had those type of leagues. If you didn't go to the NBA, there was no G League. So these guys were honing their skills on the playgrounds in New York City and a lot of tournaments, and, and mainly uh, the world-renowned Rucker Park League. So, you know, I was thrust into just a, a situation that I couldn't one, show no fear. I couldn't back down. And then I had to go out there and, and, and just uh, perform at my best and, and, and learn who I'm playing against on the fly because I would have to face these guys again and again. So your nickname was Skip to my Lou, um, and that became really synonymous with you in college and in the pros. Uh, tell everybody, you know, it's in the documentary, but, but how did you get that nickname? Because it's a funny story. Uh, I got the nickname uh, at Rucker Pop. It was a situation where I just thought of something to do to get the, the crowd off their feet. And I just came to my head and I said, if I get a three-on-one or two-on-one fast break, I'm going to put a little spin on the ball as I'm still going down the court and I'm just going to skip down the court and make, have, make the defender think I'm not paying attention to the ball and have him go for the ball. And 
you, 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 I couldn't even dream of it better than that. And, and, and the defender went for it just, just as I thought of it happening. He went for the ball and I just wrapped it around my back and threw it to my teammate. He finished it with a dunk all in stride. And the commentator at the time was like, you know, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, we have a new nickname for him. His name is Skip to my Lou. And everyone just ran on the court. The game stopped. And who, who would ever known just from that, this one little thought in my head that uh, a name would stick me for the rest of my life and become so legendary. So, you know, you, you played at Fresno State. I want to talk to you about that in a minute. But before that, you ended up at JUCO in California. And I was curious about that pathway because, um, you know, you, you mentioned in the documentary, it talks about, you know, school, just the complications of, of where you grew up and what, you know, you missed a lot of school, whatever. How did you end up in JUCO in Ventura, California? Because that's about an hour from where I live. Uh, for people who don't know, it's kind of like a, a beachy surf town. Uh, I could imagine for a guy from New York, I don't know what it was like the first time you got off the plane or, or off the bus or however you got there. What was it like when you got to Ventura? And was just that was just that part of your journey knowing, you know, this is the stop that I have to make to where I want to get, which is to be at the highest level professionally that I can be? Well, um, uh, high school, I mean, uh, high school, uh, AAU coach of mine by the name, Gary Chaw, um, okay. he recommended that, you know, I go out to this school. Okay. And it took me no time to just uh, agree to, to go. It was like a, two days later, I think I was on the plane going. Uh, I arrived, the uh, assistant coach, coach picked me up from the airport, drove me all the way up. Uh, we got far away from LA, and so I realized as, as we approached Ventura, I'm like, all right, well, this is not what I dreamed of as far as California, LA, Hollywood, and all this stuff. So, um, but yet it was a very nice, nice area, beautiful, calm, uh, quiet at night, uh, something that I wasn't used to in New York City. Uh, yeah. <laughs> everything shuts down in Ventura probably like 8 15, <laughs> 9 o'clock. You know, I'm used to everything being open at 3 4 in the morning. Uh, Head coach at the time was uh, Ventura was a guy by the name Phil Matthews, and uh, uh, the Ventura College, the junior college basketball program was pretty much known out there in California at the time. They had, they had the likes of the Sergio Sabalas who went there, uh, um, a guy by the name Brandon Jess who ended up at University of Utah. Uh, so they, they were known, and uh, so I get to the school, to say the least. The head coach, I, I was like the last guy to arrive at the school. Okay. So all the guys that he's probably recruited or had that was that came there that was gonna come out for the team, they were uh already there. And he approached me and said, Well, I think I have the team already. And so he had no idea really who I was, my talent, my skill set. It wasn't until it wasn't until we were playing pickup ball. And I was just running through these guys. And, and, yes. and out of nowhere, he was like, hey, come here. And he's like, oh, no. He's like, oh, no, no, you're going to be on this team. And I told him, I know. <laughs> so I just told him, you know, I knew I, I knew that was going to happen. So I just wait. I was just waiting for him to see me play and everything. And it just took on a life of his own. We ended up winning the state championship, junior college state championship out there. We only lost one game. We had a phenomenal group of guys. Uh, we, we played 10 guys. We went 10 deep. Um, I ended up getting MVP of the state finals. Um, and, you know, the rest was history. But, you know, I tell everybody, one of the greatest decisions I made in my life is to go out to California for junior college and uh, um, continue my journey, continue my career as far as basketball. Um, 
Why do you um, say that? Why do you say that, Ray? Uh, it, it was a situation where I, was get, I get far away from New York City. I get far away from the things that might have been distracting me in high school that hindered me from having that storybook high school career. So now I go on and, and I could just focus on school and, and basketball. Tell me about Fresno. Um, people that listen to this show know I'm a huge Jerry Tarkanian guy. I'm a little bit obsessed with the man. Um, you played one year at Fresno State, another year at JUCO, but one year at Fresno State, uh, your team was stacked. I mean, Chris Heron, who played in the league, a couple other guys who played in the league. Uh, how'd you get there? And then I'm just going to be a, a fanboy and nerd out. Just tell me some Jerry Tarkania stories. Uh, um, he actually recruited me from uh, Ventura. Okay. Uh, while I was there, I think that's when he announced in 95 he was going to come back and coach and he's going to take over at uh, Fresno State. Um, we were playing in the quarterfinals in Ventura and uh, we were playing against his son's school at Chafee Junior College. Uh, which is outside of Rancho Cucamonga. Uh, uh, I think George Tarkane's coaching. He was the head coach. So one of his sons was coaching. He came to see some players. And that night I had a phenomenal night. I think I had finished with like 24 points, eight assists, something like that. And right off the bat, he just said, I got to get this kid up there. So I ended up transferring. Actually, I was like hiding out technically. I ended up transferring to Fresno City Junior College, sure. really to hide out from all the other universities that, that were trying to get me. So I ended up going to Fresno State and, and coming into that year, 97, uh, 98 season, we were one of the top 10 teams. We were picked to be one of the best teams, if not go as far as at least the Elite Eight or something to that degree. We had some of the most phenomenal talent as far as basketball can, can ever assemble on one team. Uh, we had Juco Junior College All-Americans, we had high school All-Americans, we had guys transferring from major universities that were McDonald's All-Americans. We had a parade over <laughs> So um, it was one of the most underachieving groups um, in my entire basketball as a whole. Um, we ended up at the NIT, ended up going to the uh, NIT East Final Four, and we ended up playing in New York. But uh, I had one of the greatest times playing for Coach Tarkini. Uh He was one guy that was always into his uh, players. Um, he cared so much about the players. One thing about Coach Tarkane, he didn't mind losing his job if it meant helping a young man turn his life around. And that's one thing you will never see probably ever again in the history of this game as far as college basketball goes. Um, the universities won't allow most coaches to go to bat for a lot of, a lot of um, players. Um, he was one guy, he didn't care. Uh, if a guy had a court situation, a court appearance, to Jerry Tarkane would appear at the court. Uh, he would he would go the unbelievable length to try to help uh, a young man turn his life around. Uh, if you weren't doing the right thing on the court uh, in the games, um, he'll let you know. Uh, he'll say some funny things. I remember one time uh, we weren't performing well. Uh, I think we dropped two straight games, and he mentioned that um, we're robbing the school of their scholarship money. <laughs> You know, but um, well, one thing he 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 cared, man. Um, it was one of the greatest times of my life because the guy, you know, growing up when I was young, before I went to junior college, like three coaches I dreamed about playing for. One was John Thompson from Georgetown. The other was uh, Lou Carnesecca, and the other one was Jerry Tarkanian. Um, and 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 I had the the chance to live out a dream, and um, um. I, I remember it like it was yesterday, and I enjoyed every minute of it. The only part I, I, I actually told them 
at the end of the last game that, you know, sorry for letting them down because I thought we should have gone to the NCAA tournament. We should have a better year. That's incredible. So, you know, from there, you end up in the NBA, but there's kind of this middle ground. Real quick, this is the part that I'm a little confused on. I want you to clarify. So the and one mixtape stuff kind of blew up right when you were starting your pro career, right? So was it, give me the timeline. So for people who do not know, first of all, we got a young audience here, Ray, for that maybe doesn't even know what the N1 mixtape was. This was the, the biggest, I mean, I don't even know how to describe it. It was the biggest thing in the world. You had these VHS tapes, which the young people probably don't know about. Um, and it was highlights of the best street ball players in the world. So, and you were kind of the, the headliner of that. You're Ray for Alston. It was almost like a Clark Kent and Superman. You know, by day you're in the NBA, Ray for Alston. At night you're skipped to my Lou. So how did, were, how were you involved with N one mixtape? Did they just kind of take your foot? Explain that whole story. Well, they, they grabbed, they uh, um, uh, acquired the footage from, you know, people in and around New York that were filming a lot of my playground games. Sure. Um, then they thought about the idea of rolling out the first mixtape. Uh, while I was ascending, making my transition from uh, Fresno State into the NBA, they started to come about a lot, of, I mean, to come up with a, a tour, which was a, a lot of guys that I grew up playing with or against in the playgrounds of New York City, uh, different tournaments and prefer, I mean, and mainly the Rucker Park League. And, um, you know, they thought about, you know, can we get Rafa to join the guys on tour? For a few dates in a few cities, uh, you know, when they roll when they would roll them out. So it was actually kind of a risky thing, but on my part, but it was summertime and it wasn't going to be strenuous. Um, and I thought it'd be a phenomenal thing. And they thought it, and, and all the guys that were on the tour then uh at the time, they felt it was gonna be some phenomenal if Skip could come back and you know uh and you know join us and and then and, and, and you know and, and Re relive his uh skip move and skip days when he was on uh, playing at Rucker Park. Sure. So we we toured, man. We I mean it, it that we were treated like rock stars every city we went to. Um, the N one mixtape tour took on a life of its own every year. Every year it just kept getting bigger and bigger to where we were like the number one thing on ESPN. We were getting sponsorships from everywhere, especially like Mountain Dew, Cold Red at the time, and um. We were on TV every day, all day throughout the summer, all the way to like late, mid to late August. We were like, from it was running from June all the way to August. Um, uh, it was it was a phenomenal time, um, especially during a time where you're not getting a lot of basketball. And two, you're getting a different brand, different style of ball than what you accustomed to and what you were watching during the year. So you you know most people are used to watching high school, college, pro, right? Uh, and now you get a chance to just see some some fun basketball, some tricks, uh, um, just young men using their imagination with the basketball. And I just thought it was a, it was a great run that we had. It was phenomenal. Just some of the cities we went to, some of the hearts we captured, uh, some of the things some of these guys could do with the basketball. And we had guys like, uh, hot sauce professor. I mean, we just every year we would find a new guy that could do something better than what I can or another guy could do with the ball in, in which the next city or state would just we'll get another 20, 30,000 more fans that's, that loved it. And um, 
lot of us still stay in contact till this day. A lot of us are friends and a lot of us, you know, we still talk about some of those tour dates that we had. And, and, and I mean, I hope we came to a city that you were living at the time or area you lived in that. I mean, it, it was phenomenal what, what, what we were able to do. Let me, was the tour, was it, it was during the NBA offseason, so you would yeah. get out? Yep. Okay. okay. Yep. So I would finish the season, and then in the summertime, as I'm still training, working on my game, getting ready to go back to the team, you know, make sure I'm always in shape for a training camp, I would do the, the tour, the uh, annual mixtape tour dates uh, in between time. What do you think about the fact that it seems like there's been this, there was this shift where, you know, 10, 12 years ago, Kobe used to show up at Rucker Park. KD used to show up at Rucker Park. Then it was kind of like this thing where everybody had a brand and you can't do this and you can't do that. Now, this past weekend, as we record, LeBron just showed up at the Drew League. There's talk as, as we record, Trey Young is going to go this weekend. Um, Kyrie is supposed to pop in and out. It feels like there's almost like a movement back to, I don't know if street ball is the right word, but kind of that, you know, pro and you know what I'm, does, does that make sense? It, it feels yeah, like it's it, kind it of makes sense, but I mean, like I said, nothing's being done different, sure. right? So like you said, people popped in at Rucker Park. Before I was born, people popped in at Rucker Park, right? Dr. J, Connie Hawkins, you name it, world be free. These are phenomenal, if not world-class basketball players right? and that's, that are Hall of Famers. They popped in in summer programs and summer leagues, right? It, no, no, no one's reinventing anything. It's not going to be, it says nothing that's going to be done a different, right? So that's what's going on now in the Drew League. You're going to have pros come in because that's the league that people are gravitating to right now, right? For so long, you're talking about decades, decades, decades. You, I'm telling you, you're 40, 50 years. People are popping in the Rucker League. People are popping in, in and out of New York City coming to basketball. I mean, people pros were coming to West 4th Street in New York City, like a little small, little small court in the cage. Pros were going to other cities like Philadelphia to play in a pro-am, the, 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 the Ray Goodman League down there, right? So here we are now, 2022, they're doing the same. It just so happened that league is in California in Los Angeles, and, and it's a phenomenal thing. Um, I think it's phenomenal for the fans as more it is for the league, for that league, right? Because that league is going to go on regardless if these guys show up or not, right? Next year, there's going to be a Drew League, right? Uh, but for the fans that don't get a chance to go to an NBA game, to now have NBA players pull up to their backyard and play in a game is one of the most, is the greatest thing that I can say that these men are doing uh, uh, with their, with their offseason and their time. Um, and I think it's a phenomenal thing that they're doing. A couple quick questions to get you out of here. And again, the documentary airs July 29th, New York City Point Guards, a unique look at New York City's iconic and transcending point guards. You know, part of the history of streetball, if you follow it, and like I said, I'm a nerd for this stuff, there's a lot of guys that that are iconic, you know, in the neighborhood or whatever, but they don't have success at the highest levels. And, and it's for a lot of different reasons. It seems like you had a maturity to you where you could go to California and be comfortable out there, where you could go play at Fresno. You could go to the NBA and kind of change your game to suit playing for Pat Riley, to suit playing whatever. What, what do you think it was about you that allowed you to, and Mark Jackson even says it in the film, you're the guy that was the, was the street legend, the college legend, and then 
made it in the league where there's a lot of guys that that don't, that have that success in the, the streets that don't have success in, at the highest levels of the pros. What do you think it was about you that allowed you to kind of ascend the way that, you know, a, a basketball player should, a, a basketball player of your talents? You know what I mean? The, the, the one thing that um, helped me was that I was always a student of the game. See, the problem is with me is that that's street ball and the playgrounds, that's all they had a chance to hear about and see of me. Uh, but if you ask a lot of the guys I played against and played with upcoming, they'll tell you, I was really the furthest thing from that. Okay. Um, I played a lot of AAU ball, right? The one thing I didn't play was a lot of high school ball because my um, uh, inability to, to attend a lot of high school classes, being ineligible and things of that nature. So, but I played a lot of summer ball. I played, I played in the, uh, the pump and run tournament in LA. I played in Phoenix. Back then they had this tournament. This was the biggest tournament around was called the BCI. Okay. Uh, and it would, it would, it would, it would go to four different cities throughout the year. So it's played four times out of the year with Arizona, Phoenix, Lubbock, Texas, and another city, right? So you would have to do well. It's kind of like how like some of these tournaments are. You have to do well in some of the, some of the other teams to get to the fall. And we and so I played against guys like Antoine Walker, Samaki Walker, uh, in these AAU programs, Chauncey Phillips. Uh, I played against guys uh, like Ricky Price, Toby Bailey, uh, Jelani Gardner, uh, all these guys when I came out west, and they got a chance to see what kind of player I was, and and they understood that that one, I was a force to be reckoned with when I was coming up through the ranks. And the only thing, like I said, so when I got to the NBA, a lot of those NBA eyes at that time and, and before, you know, in the 80s, 70s and things of that nature, um, they always have that stigma with about a New York City player or things, uh, uh, plays that come from the playground, that they think that that style of play is junk ball. Right. So when I got in the NBA, it wasn't about so much I had to adjust. The main thing was they had to adjust. They had to adjust their mind. Stop thinking that I'm some type of playground player. When I finally got the opportunity, gave me the opportunity to run their team, it wasn't much they needed to show me. Right? I, I, I take care of the ball. I play defense. I'm a, I'm a three to one, almost pushing four to one assist turnover ratio guy. I could throw a post pass. And these are all the things I've learned from a, from a child, uh, watching Mark Jackson, watching Pearl Washington, watching Ross Strickland, Kenny Anderson, Kenny Smith, Vern Fleming. The list goes on about a New York City point guard, right? We can go back to Bob Cousy. Right? Bob Cousy's from Queens, New York. So we could go back for a long time about a, the New York City point guard. We have a lot to learn, a lot of people to learn from. And I was fortunate to come right behind these guys and learn. It just so happened, like I said, and I mentioned this in the, in the documentary that I didn't have the storybook high school career. So everyone just throws, oh, he was just a street ball player until they had to get, a, until they had to face me, until they had to line up across from me. And the same thing with coaches, until you, ha until you had, to, until they cleared their mind and had a chance to just understand what type of player I really am. Uh, um, my career was able to, I was able to last a decade and more in that league. Two quick questions. You know, one, 
the street ball still is in an everyday in New York. You know, it was so cult. It was such a part of the culture. I feel like I live on the West Coast, so I don't know. Tell me if I'm an idiot. It feels like it's not as big anymore. And again, it feels like part of it is the culture of basketball now is you play AAU, you have a private trainer, you have private runs. Is street ball still the thing in New York? I mean, if, if I'm if I'm dumb and ignorant, you can tell me, but is it still is Street ball it, would always be the thing in New York. Okay. Street, okay. It, it would never go anywhere. Is that you know, look, we have the uh, the, the Dykeman League might be just as big or bigger than the Drew League. Okay. The Drew League is just more on on on, on more platforms right now. Sure. Right? It's, you can stream it on certain some platforms, I think, right now, the Drew League. But the Dykeman gets an Dykeman League in New York City gets an unbelievable crowd. Unbelievable. Pros still pros still come to New York, fly in and play in the Dykeman League. Streetball would always be synonymous with New York City. Basketball would always be king in New York City. Right? It's 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 um think about other than the Drew League, you don't know what else. What other tournament, what else is going on basketball-wise in, in LA or California? You don't hear about any other leagues going on somewhere else. Uh, you might get a little, somebody might show something about the Miami Pro League. They might show something, a clip here, a clip there. But in New York City, you're going to always get spoon-fed every year something going on as far as the playground uh, um, game or the streetball game, the outside leagues. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's the culture. It's part of our communities. It's part of, it's a way of life in New York City. It's, it's like, I, I live in Texas now and you got football, baseball, tennis, basketball. Um, in New York City, it's basketball, 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 then baseball, um, and maybe some other stuff, but like football could be a distant fourth. Uh, so wait, you, know. you live in Texas right now? Yes. See, everybody says, oh, Houston's coming up. Dallas is coming up. That's where all the players are coming from. What do you say when people say that? Um, it, it, it seems like that. Uh, it's a lot of phenomenal talent in Houston, in the state of Texas, Houston, Dallas, and then and and you got talent all around Texas. Um, a lot of basketball, a lot of good talent is, is is here in Houston. A lot of good talent is in Dallas. Um, um, excuse me. Everybody has their time, right? And when you think about these, a lot of these cities and states, for us in New York, we would say it's about time. Uh, right for so long for so long even when I was a young kid we get a chance to see so many college coaches just when college coaches were coming to the playground to recruit players yeah. right we would see Bobby Kremen we would see Jim Beheim we would see all these guys these these uh, uh we would see uh Dean Smith they all come to New York and get a get a play or point guard right did you you have the, the players in Chicago Right. Ever since um, Isaiah Thomas and Tim Hardaway, uh, the list goes on. Chicago was putting out a lot of players. Then you had Detroit. Right. Then you have California. California was putting out. If you look right now, California has a lot of players in that NBA. <laughs> so, um, so now when I think about Texas and about man, it's it's a wonderful thing. Uh, it's beautiful, but a lot for us in New York City, we will say uh, it's about time. Ray for Austin, uh, my man, I appreciate this again. The the documentary, uh, New York City Point Guards, unique look at New York City's iconic and trend-setting point guard. Did you have fun doing the documentary? I mean, I'm I'm assuming you've seen it and everything. Did you have fun? Was it a good time? Well, I, don't get, I don't get I don't get chance. We don't get a chance to see it until uh, it's coming up. I think we got to we have to go to, to premiere. The premiere's on July 26th in New York City. Okay. Uh, 
So well, I've, I've seen most of it. It's pretty good. I'm not gonna lie. So you know, I get a chance to see it. It, it. it brings back a lot of memories. I think for a lot of us, it brings back tears of joy. Um, because um, for a lot of us growing up in New York City, we put all of us, we put you know coming up. That was our way out, and we put our eggs and all in that one basket, and that was to make it make it in basketball. Um, it's different now. Um, it's different now throughout. America, different. All these. In what, in what way? What do you mean by that? Well, I'm saying is that even now because they have uh, more outlets are being fed to them, uh, and it's, they're being pushed to be a lot of things other than uh, athlete. Uh, when we were coming up in New York City, um, like I said, they they might when you're born in New York City back then they put a basketball in your crib or your stroller, so. At the end of the day, we, we were we were fed that this was our way out. And, and every other male you walked by in New York City when you were growing up had a shot to be a great or was a great basketball player at their time. And, and so it's inevitable for a lot of us that's in this documentary. It was inevitable that we were, we were going to go far in this game. Documentary is all well. I'll tell you this. I've seen most of it. Documentary is awesome. Uh, Mark Jackson, Kemba Walker's interviewed, uh, Stephon Marbury, on and on and on, and Ray Ferrellston. Dude, I appreciate the time, man. I, I genuinely appreciate it. Enjoy the documentary when you get a chance to watch yeah. it. The rest of us will be yeah. watching on uh, on Friday, okay? Thank you, man. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody. I am back. First off, thank you. Ray for Alston, incredible interview. Genuinely enjoyed talking to Ray for and genuinely appreciated his time. With that said, we're going to get back to the show in a minute. But before we do, UFC 277 is Saturday with the matchup everyone has been waiting for. Juliana Pena versus Amanda Nunez. And our partners at DraftKings and the DraftKings Sportsbook have an incredible offer for first-time users. Bet $5 on any fight or any fighter on the entire UFC 277 card, and you automatically win $100 in free bets courtesy of the DraftKings Sportsbook. That is right. Bet on any fight, any fighter, $5. You automatically win $100 in free bets if, the, if you are a first-time user of the DraftKings Sportsbook. Here's how it works. Click the link in the show description. Sign up for a new account in the DraftKings Sportsbook and make your first deposit. Bet $5 on any fight or any fighter, and you win $100. $100 in free bets, courtesy of the DraftKings Sportsbook. It is the best offer going in sports betting right now. So act quickly. UFC 277 is on Saturday. If you or somebody you know has a gambling problem, crisis counseling and referral services can be accessed by calling 1-800-GAMBLER, 1-800-426-2537 in Illinois. Gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER in Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Wyoming. 1-800-9 within in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, 1-888-532-3500 in Virginia, 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona, or call or text Tennessee Redline, 1-800-889-9789. Must be 21 plus or over to enter, 18 plus or over in Wyoming, Arizona, Colorado, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, Wyoming, New York, Louisiana only, minimum $5 deposit, minimum $5 wager, eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com Sportsbook for full terms and conditions. All right, everybody. I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Final segment of the show. So good to be back. 
Uh, first of all, thank you, partners, DraftKings and the DraftKings Sportsbook. Incredible offer for first-time users of the Sportsbook for UFC this weekend. Thank you to DraftKings for being an incredible partner and incredible sponsor of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, big thank you to Ray for Alston. Really enjoyed that interview with Ray for Alston. If you, if you, uh, not, not, not if you missed it, but the documentary does premiere tonight on HBO about the point guard legacy in New York. Featuring not only Ray for Alston, but Mark Jackson, Stefan Marbury, Kenny Anderson. I really do think you guys and girls will enjoy it. Make sure to check that out. With that said, let's wrap the show like we do every single Friday with America's favorite segment, Where Aaron Was Right, Where Aaron Was Wrong. And the concept of the segment, you already know it's pretty straightforward. One, I stole it from my buddy Colin Cowherd. Colin does Where Colin Was Right, Where Colin Was Wrong. And I've decided to bring it to this show for one simple reason. It is because... Nobody loves giving out opinions more than your boy Torres, and nobody loves patting himself on the back more than I do. And so while I love to brag about those great opinions that I get right all the time, I will also tell you straight up that I get a lot of stuff wrong too. And so I got to own it. I got to take responsibility. I got to take my slaps on the wrist. I got to drink my medicine, and I got to own when I am wrong. So we like to play where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. Fun way to end the week, basically Giving, my, giving out my best and worst predictions in recent weeks, where Aaron was right. So we talked about it a little bit in the mailbag on Wednesday, but Gene Smith hinted but didn't really hint that they are talking about expanding to a 16-team playoff. This just days after I tried to tell you. Greg Sankey, when he was on the podium and he joked about, hey, we're going to go to 10 conference games, and he also said that we're completely blowing up every model of the playoff that we have looked at, what this says to me is that we are getting a big, bloated, expanded playoff suit. I'm not saying that I like it. I understand that it's hit or miss. Some people like the idea of an expanded playoff. I don't think we really need it. I'll take it a step further. As I said on Wednesday's show, I think you can argue we need a, an expanded playoff less now than we ever have because so much of the power in college football is going to be consolidated. But when you have the two biggest voices or two of the three or four biggest voices in college sports the commissioner of the SEC saying, yep, we're going back to square one. I have more control and I have more say than ever before. Also, the Ohio State AD hinting that we could potentially get to a 16-team playoff. What it says to me, whether it's 12, whether it's 16, we are going to get there. We're going to get there soon. And as I've talked about a lot over the last couple months, if you're a fan of the SEC, this is good news. Your second, third, fourth, maybe fifth team We'll have a chance to compete for a national championship. Same with the Big Ten. If you're everybody else, you're kind of screwed. We'll see what college football looks like in 8, 10, 12 years as all this expansion and realignment changes and adjusts things. But I do think we are getting an expanded playoff. I think it's going to be bigger than we want, and I think it's going to happen soon. Where Aaron was wrong. So last Monday's show, I talked a little bit about my boy Jeremy Pruitt, who, oh boy, did we find out that this guy created a mess at Tennessee? 18 level one violations, $60,000 paid to recruits and their families, some of it out of his own pocket, some of it out of his wife's own pocket. And I understand that NCAA rules have changed, and I understand this, that, the other thing. But at the end of the day, whether it's in the NIL era, the pre-NIL era, you can't pay recruits out of your pocket. And so where I was wrong, I thought this guy, I didn't know if he was a good hire, but there was a stretch there where Tennessee got hot late in his second season, early in his third season. I said, this is the guy Tennessee has been waiting for. Accountability, structure, this, that. 
I know he wasn't. He was just a cheating, rotten scoundrel uh, that the players checked out on and just another disaster at Tennessee. It's really funny because uh, I was talking to the kid who runs the Torres on the Vols account about three or four days ago. His name's Jackson. He does an incredible job. And we were joking that during COVID in May, Tennessee went on a run, a recruiting run of about three or four weeks. They just kept picking up kids. And we thought, oh my goodness, this Jeremy Pruitt guy's unbelievable. Turns out he was basically the only one having recruits on campus, getting them to commit. Jeremy Pruitt, a complete mess. Credit to Tennessee for getting rid of him. Credit to Tennessee for working with the NCAA. I don't think Jeremy Pruitt's ever going to work in college football again, but I was dead wrong because there was a stretch during his time as the Tennessee head coach where I thought it was going to work out really well. Where Aaron was right. About three or four weeks ago, when the live golf stuff really started to pick up steam, I said the PGA Tour better watch out, okay? PGA Tour doesn't run the events that we all care about. The Masters, the U.S. Open, the British Open. Yes, I still call it the British Open. They don't run the Ryder Cup. And so what was going to end up happening was it was only going to take one player taking all the public bullets and arrows and whatever about live golf And once the first guy did it, you were going to see more and more guys go because at the end of the day, golfers are independent contractors. They don't have guaranteed contracts and they have to take the most money that is offered to them. Now, they don't have to, but for most of them, it's a no-brainer. As I always joke, as J.J. Reddick says, it's a simple math equation, F-head. If somebody's offering you 50 million or 100 million guaranteed, you're going to take that offer over a situation where you have no guaranteed money, you pay your own way, all that good stuff. So why do I bring it up? Well, did you see what's going on this week in Live Golf? First of all, another marquee player, Bubba Watson, has signed up. Obviously, as I record, things may change in the coming days or hours by the time that you listen to this. Charles Barkley is clearly interested in leaving TNT to work for Live Golf, and they also announced expanded to 14 events next year, a $405 million prize pool. Listen, it's it's like Charles Barkley said. We can all get on our high horse. We can all pretend that we wouldn't do what some of these golfers are doing. But at the end of the day, when people are offering you upwards of nine figures guaranteed money, it's impossible to turn down. It's life-changing money, not only for you, but for your kids and your grandkids. And it was only going to take one. It was Phil Mickelson. And now I think the PGA Tour is in trouble. Think about all the marquee players that when the tour comes to your town, you want to see. Bubba Watson. Well, guess what? He ain't playing in the PGA Tour anymore. Dustin Johnson, Patrick Reed, Bryson DeChambeau, Brooks Kepka. I mean, you start going through the marquee players that have not left for live yet, Outside of Tiger and Rory, how many of them are there? Now, there are still some. Scotty Scheffler's playing really well. I get all that. But I told you, the first guy was going to have to take all the heat publicly. He was going to be the bad guy. He's going to take Saudi oil money. But once that first guy did it, they were all going to start coming in. Add Bubba Watson to the mix. Charles Barkley as a broadcaster may be next. I can't lie. I nailed this one. And if I had uh, imaginary stock in the PGA Tour, I'd be very nervous because so many marquee players now are headed to live. Where Aaron was wrong. So about, what, two weeks ago, prior to SEC Media Days, I kind of gave my State of the Union SEC address. uh, And I got some anger from Kentucky fans because I think I'm a little more down on Kentucky than than others. Uh, And I mentioned it at the time, right? Um, You know, they lose their offensive coordinator, Liam Cohen, back to the NFL. Their best skill position player, Wandale Robinson, 
got drafted, and I just felt like they took advantage of some scheduling quirks last year where they beat Florida before we realized how bad they were. They beat LSU in a historically bad year for LSU, and so I'm just not as high on Kentucky as everybody else. But apparently I was wrong because the media seems to love them. Kentucky picked to finish in second place in the SEC media poll following the SEC media days. And what I would say is I don't think it's crazy by any stretch of the imagination. I don't believe that at all. I would personally put Tennessee ahead of them. Um, I I don't think South Carolina's there. I don't think Missouri's there. I'd put Kentucky at third, but I'm just a little bit lower on them than most. But the media seems to love them. They They were picked to finish second in the SEC media poll where Aaron was right so I've been trying to tell you I'm literally the only person for four years what Bill Self did in this FBI investigation was really 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 bad and again to go back to Jeremy Pruitt I understand that NCAA rules have changed I understand that funneling money to players isn't as big of a deal now as it was three four five years ago at the same time Bill Self still broke major NCAA rules. I've said it on this show for years. Bill Self is personally responsible for more than Sean Miller was, for more than Rick Pitino we can prove. But Bill Self kept getting a pass from the media. Well, what happened this week? We talked about it on Wednesday. Kansas pulled Bill Self off the road during recruiting. What this says from Kansas is that they know that the NCAA is about to drop the hammer on them. Should they? Shouldn't they? The rules have changed. NIL's allowed now. I get all that. But as I just said with Jeremy Pruitt, it doesn't matter if it was five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, or right now. Coaches can't can't pay players out of their own pocket like Jeremy Pruitt did, and Bill Self certainly was working with Adidas to make sure families get money. You can argue whether it's right. You can argue if the players deserve more. What you cannot argue is that Bill Self broke the rules as they were written four, five, six years ago. It appears as though Kansas finally realizes that. They pulled him off of the road in recruiting, and I will be very curious to see what's next. As I said on Wednesday's show, my hunch is that because all of the players that were there at the time are gone, the school, uh, the NCAA may come really hard down on Bill Self while also maybe sparing the program as a whole. I wouldn't be surprised if Bill Self gets a lengthy, lengthy suspension. Where Aaron was wrong, so earlier this week, number three player in America, basketball-wise, Justin Edwards committed to Kentucky. Uh, he, along with Rob Dillingham, two top 10 prospects, and Reed Shepard, a top 20 prospect. And oh, by the way, Kentucky is very much in the lead for DJ Wagner, the number one high school player in America, and possibly Aaron Bradshaw, a top 20 prospect as well, although I believe that he will go to G League Ignite. Where I was wrong was this. Throughout the season this past year, when Kentucky really was rolling, there was a time. We can, we can brush it under the rug now because of St. Peter's. But at the time, I said, if I was John Calipari, I would get out of the recruiting high school players game unless they're definitive top five, top ten prospects and just hit the transfer portal hard. Go get those third, fourth, fifth year players with college experience that have been there before, that have played in big, big games, that are grateful for the Kentucky experience But what I was also hearing behind the scenes was that even Cal wasn't sold, that Cal still prefers his old school method, his method of relying on high school players. And I can't say I blame him. It worked for about 9, 10, 11 years. And when John Calipari does have the best players, it usually results in deep, deep, deep NCAA tournament runs. I thought Cal would focus more 
on transfers, older players. He seems to enjoy having those kind of kids in the program, whether it's Reed Travis through the years, Kellen Grady this year, uh, Severe Wheeler, Oscar Shibway, obviously. But it appears as though he's going to the well with the high school stuff because he has three top 20 players committed on top of the number one player in the country, DJ Wagner, expected to commit soon. Finally, where Aaron was right, Trey Lance. So Trey Lance is the San Francisco 49ers starting quarterback, but it's almost by default, right? Because the 49ers use the number three pick in the draft on him, and at a certain point, you have to play him. This isn't Jordan Love that's picked on the back half of the first round, and it's not the Packers where they have the MVP coming back. At some point, San Francisco is going to have to move off of Jimmy Garoppolo, even though I don't think they should. But I have been saying since day one, minute one, hour one, I don't know. And you can go back, by the way, go back and listen to my podcast before the 2021 NFL draft. This is what I was saying about Trey Lance. Just think about his pathway. One, he's playing at a lower level of college football than Trevor Lawrence, than Justin Fields, than Mac Jones, the guys that were recruited, that were drafted in his class. He missed his entire final season because of COVID. His last year because of COVID, he didn't play college football. He played one game. The season was postponed to the fall, from the fall to the winter, and he, by then, was preparing for the NFL draft. I told you, I said, I just can't, I don't care what the tools are. I don't care what the upside is. He's playing against a lower level of competition. He didn't play for an entire season. Now, after a year off the field, when Trevor Lawrence took his lumps, when Zach Wilson took his lumps, when Justin Fields and Mac Jones took their lumps, all drafted in the same class as Trey Lance, he got that starting quarterback job, but it's by default. And if you read the reports, it'll. if you just read the reports, it's clear that he's not ready but that the organization essentially has no choice. I told you from the beginning, I don't trust it. It's nothing against the kid, but I just don't want to draft a kid that is playing at a lower level of competition, probably never went against more than a a single NFL defensive player on any given team. Uh, You know, he's not getting an NFL caliber pass rush like Mac Jones was in the SEC. Did not like it. Uh, Would not have been the guy that I selected. I said at the time I would have gone with Mac Jones. I would have gone with Mac Jones. Finally, where Aaron was wrong. So when all the Brian Harson stuff happened last year at Auburn, listen, I, I stood up for him. I, I thought the way that they treated him was wrong. But where I was wrong was he came out last week at SEC Media Days guns blazing. He basically said there was an investigation. He basically said they found nothing. He said, I am back to coach Auburn. Now, I don't know what Auburn's going to do this year. Because they have a schedule with Georgia and Alabama every year, because they play Penn State in the Audit Conference, because the SEC West is the toughest division in college football, I just don't know that he can win enough games to keep his job. I think realistically, probably 9-3 and three is what it's going to take for him to definitively keep his job. Maybe 8-4 and four if he pulls off an upset against Georgia, Alabama, somebody like that. But I was wrong because I just thought this guy was going to kind of you know hide under his shell and, and you know whatever, take the money and leave. This guy appears ready to fight. So credit Brian Harson, credit Auburn. And I'll tell you this, there are so many intriguing teams in college football. Next week, by the way, we'll have Phil Steele on the show. We'll talk a little bit about some of these teams. But I think Auburn's as interesting as anybody because it is clear that their coach, their players believe in him, uh, and whether they can get enough wins or not to keep him will be fascinating to watch. All right, with that said, I want to thank you guys and girls for listening to today's episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. If you're not subscribed, please make sure to do so. Apple, Spotify, 
Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure to subscribe. Also, make sure to uh, rate and review the show. Really does help us move up those iTunes charts. I, I, I did get a few new uh, uh, ratings and reviews, so I appreciate everybody's support. But make sure to leave a rating and review. Uh, also, make sure that you're subscribed. Social media, uh, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. That is all for today's show. Thank you to Ray for Alston. Thank you to all of you for listening. And we are gearing up for college football people. Uh, really, really fun couple weeks ahead. And before you know it, college football will be here. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. Shout out to JJ Reddick, you F head. Unblock me, dude. Jerry West dunked on you. I'll be back on Monday. New episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.